to the book of Psalms and turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. As we always do before we hear the word of God read, let us go again to God humbly in prayer, asking for his guidance. O oh God, you are faithful to all your generations. We pray that you would remain faithful this night to help us to understand who you are even just a little bit better, that we might worship you with greater clarity, with greater fervency of spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is Psalm 90, hear now the word of God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Please be seated. Now, one of the earliest lessons that we learn as creatures is that skill of comparing or contrasting. Daddy is bigger than baby. Mommy offers hugs for boo-boos, and daddy offers dirt. Rub some dirt on it. There are different kinds of apples within the category of apple, and some are tasty, and some are pretty nasty. There are oranges, too, but apples are not oranges. Nevertheless, they remain in the same category of fruit. Apples and oranges are not dirt, nor angels, nor demons, nor humans. But what about humans? We come from dirt, but we are not dirt. We eat apples and oranges, but we are not fruit. We are ministered to by angels, but we are not angels. We fight against demons, but we are not demons. We are humans, 
made in the image of God. And as such, we stand high and above all the rest of creation. God has even given us dominion over creation. At the same time, what is man that God is mindful of him? That is, man, as high as he is in all of creation, is still only a man. And as a man, he must be put in right perspective. He must be seen as God sees him, as a creature, as a human, as passing away, as temporary. This is what this psalm of Moses does so beautifully. Moses distinguishes God and man. God is God, we are not. This is the first lesson. This is the most foundational lesson that any creature can learn. God is God, and we are not. Look again with me at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, a few weeks ago in evening worship, we considered Psalm 91. We considered God as our refuge, as our high tower, our shelter in whom we can find refuge. And now we look at the first psalm in book four of the five books of the Psalms, Psalm 90, a psalm or a prayer of Moses, the man of God. There is a place of Psalm 90 in the book of Psalms. There is a flow of the Psalms as they have been arranged. We shouldn't think that because Moses predated pretty much any other psalm author that um, that his psalm would then been in the first of this, the book of Psalms. It's psalm 90. It's the, pretty much, it's more in the middle. But there is an order to these five books. They were arranged. They were compiled. They were arranged with a progression in mind. And scholars have tried to identify that order. And Robert Godfrey has one order. O. Palmer Robertson has another. And different authors have different orders of how the psalms go. They all follow the same thread, usually. Robert Godfrey, for instance, has the five books in this way. Book one, the king's confidence in God's care. Book two, the king's commitment to God's kingdom. Book three, the king's crisis over God's promises. Book four, this book, the king's comfort in God's faithfulness. And book five, the king's celebration of God's salvation. Or O. Palmer Robertson, in his book on the Psalms, the flow of the Psalms, has just one word to describe each book of the Psalms. Book one, he describes as confrontation. Book two, as communication. Book three, as devastation. Book four, this book, as maturation. And book five, as consummation. So we have the king's comfort in God's faithfulness. We have maturation, depending on which author we will uh, go with. But there's a connection between the two. In both of these summaries of the Psalms, we see in this fourth book of the Psalms that we are headed heavenward, that we are headed upward, we are headed to glory, we are headed to consummation, that we are going from one grace to the next. We are growing. We are, as the people of God, being led along by the Spirit of God to become more and more like God. And what makes the placement of Moses' psalm so encouraging here is that, psalm, is that it follows Psalm 89, obviously. 90 goes after 89. 
But what's remarkable here is that Psalm 89 ends with the banishment of the people of God, at least with the fear that God would banish his people, that he would desert his people. And so it is a note of encouragement when this psalm begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That is to say, you have been faithful to remain our God, even when we feel deserted, even when by your wrath, by your anger, we feel like you have abandoned us. You remain with us. God is before all generations. Now, it is beyond our focus this evening to do a a deep dive into comparing this psalm of Moses and his final song and instructions and his blessing to Israel in Deuteronomy 32 and 33. There are some parallels, which I'll draw out, but wanted to whet your appetite for additional personal study. I commend to you this week Deuteronomy 32 and 33, alongside the reading of Psalm 90. Joyfully, Moses and all of God's people can sing that God is before all generations. Our Lord God Almighty is from everlasting to everlasting, which everlastingness means that he comes before every generation that would be present in history. Now, it really is hard to imagine eternity, especially as it relates to the being of God. I don't know if some of you have tried to imagine eternity, try to wrap your finite minds on the eternal. It's very difficult. In fact, you might even say it's impossible for non-eternal beings to think about eternity. Some in history have asked, well, what was God doing before he created the world? And many of you perhaps know St. Augustine's famous answer, well, he was preparing hell for people who ask such questions. (laughs) And we don't need to go that far in answering that question. But our minds fail to grasp the eternal before. And that's because there was no before. Oftentimes we say, well, in eternity past... God did this, as if there were an eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. No, but that's our feeble attempts at trying to get our minds around this bigness of the eternality of God. Even our finite minds as children work hard to get a handle on time. Elizabeth and I have recently celebrated our 40th birthdays, and from some of our children's perspective, we are old. And they sometimes wonder what life was like in olden days. What was life like back then? What is a a tape? A tape player? What? Oh, good stuff. But Liz and I have only, biblically speaking, lived one generation. Biblically speaking, a generation is 40 years. We have met one generation's quota. Now contrast this single generation, or even the two generations that many by grace have been allowed to live, contrast this, contrast these with eternity. The difference is stark. Moses lived three generations. He died at age 120. That's quite a long life. But what were these three generations before God? Adam lived 930 years. 930 years. That is almost 233 generations. Again, if we're working on the premise that a generation is 40 years, almost 233 generations. 
And he wasn't even the oldest man who lived. Methuselah lived 969 years, just over 242 generations. He's got Moses beat by a lot. Man, that is old. It would be like if he lived, if he was born two years before the East and the West split in 1025 AD, and then was here to tell us, you know, as a first you know, witness of what that was all about. That's a long time. And he died. What is that? What is one generation? What are two generations? What are three generations? What are 233 generations? What are 242 generations to God? A thousand years in God's sight are like yesterday, the psalm says. Like a three-hour watch in the night. Like a dream that you cannot remember. Like the grass that was here today and gone tomorrow. That's what all of these years on earth are like to our eternal God. But remarkably, the psalm begins with Yahweh, with our Lord, being our dwelling place in all generations. Moses was not part of all generations. Many came before him, and many more will come after him than what had preceded him. Though Moses was not part of all generations, he affirms that the eternal God has been with his people from the start of time, from the beginning of counting generations. As earth gave birth to her first generation, it was God we see in this psalm, it was God who had planted the seed. Verse 2 speaks of this divine begetting, God bringing forth those ancient monuments, those mountains. In Moses' song, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 18, he used the same language to describe God begetting and giving birth to Israel as a nation. It was the rock that bore Israel. It was God that gave birth to Israel. Moses is telling us in these two songs, in Deuteronomy and in Psalm 90, that before there was an earthly king in Israel... Before there was an exile, before there was a promised land, before there even was an Israel, there was the God of all generations. Indeed, in David's day, the kingdom was being threatened. But as Moses says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, there has always been the king, the Lord, over all the tribes of Israel. Even before Israel was a thing. The application point here is, is pretty clear. God is faithful to dwell with man. God is faithful to dwell with man. This faithfulness to dwell with all of his people wherever and whenever they are surely is a comfort to us, is it not? When we consider ourselves as faithless sinners, when we view ourselves as covenant breakers, we marvel that God would be graciously pleased to dwell with us and then to keep dwelling with us. He knows that we sin every single day. Surely he knows that Israel in the Old Testament was going to sin and that each generation would be one generation of faithlessness after another. Yes, some would be better than others. Yes, some kings of Judah would be better than others. But they would all pale. They would all be imperfect. They would all fail. Surely then this is a comfort to us when we see that God is still pleased to dwell with us as sinners 
And when we view ourselves as redeemed sinners, we still stand amazed that God would seek worshipers, that God would call us to himself, and that by his spirit he would abide with us without a blip in time. The Lord's covenant consciousness is grounded in his eternal contentment to dwell with us. Oh, we are daily faced with the tyranny of the urgent. You've heard that. You've got to get done what is urgent. That's what takes all your time. And God is eternally pleased to keep on plodding along to bring to full fruition his eternal covenant of redemption. We go from one anxiety to the next anxiety. We go from one uncertainty to the next uncertainty. We go from one stress to the next stress. We go from one enemy to the next enemy. But God, all the while, remains unfazed. Not uncaring, but unfazed. Steadfast in his love for you and me. Steadfast in his eternal plan of redemption for you and me. God is not surprised by anything that happens in any of the generations. He remains king. He remains Lord. He remains eternal. You cannot strip him of his eternity. Now, we operate this way, going from one stress to the next and on and on. We, we do this because we are not eternal God. We are evanescent man. Now, if you're like me, when you hear the word evanescent, your mind goes to the band, evanescence. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you know that the band chose its name rather prophetically. Evanescence means passing away. It means fleeting. Regrettably, as far as I know, evanescence is no more. Please correct me if I'm wrong, just not right now, because that ruins, that ruins the point. <laughs> Evanescent man is finite. He is full of finitude, if you will. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Man, Moses, the man of God says, is finite. He is limited. He is temporary. He is dependent. Now, this man, Moses, knew his finitude. He knew his limitations. And for this fact alone, we should not be surprised then to read in Scripture that Moses was the meekest of all men. He knew himself. Surely he would recall the often told story from his mother about, how, about his risky beginnings, how his life was threatened, how he had to be hidden among the reeds of the Nile. Such precarious beginnings. Or when he found himself in a pickle with an Egyptian and then an Israelite, he fled for his life, knowing that his life could easily be taken. When he was called by God to lead a people, he objected, Surely not I, Lord. And if we could take Paul's words many generations later, we can hear Paul saying in Moses, Who is sufficient for these things? Oh, Lord, I am not sufficient to lead this people. And when God put Moses and the people between a body of water and a body of men, Moses surely knew his own limitations. How could he get them out of that predicament? He could not. When he took the people in the wilderness, he knew that he could not bring about change in the lives of the people, stubborn people that he often called them, a rebellious people. 
He knew he was not the spirit. He knew he could not effect change in them. He was limited. He could guide them. He could give them the word, but he could not change their hearts. He depended upon the Lord to do that. He was finite. He also was fallen, just like every other man. Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Not only did Moses know his own finitude, but he also beheld his own fallenness. Moses, the sinner, sighed because of the sins that he had committed. And here he says that we are brought to an end by the righteous anger of the Lord. Even our secret sins are not so secret to the Lord. The psalm says they are ever before God, which is a scary thought. Even all those sins that you have committed, that you have not told anyone about, all those nasty thoughts you have had, those words that you uttered under your breath, the things you failed to do, the things that you did do, you shouldn't have done, all of those are ever before the Lord. It surely is a terrifying thought when you remember that these are before the thrice holy God. And so he says, by your wrath, we are dismayed. If we just consider only the fact that we are sinners, we are dismayed. If we consider only the fact that we have sinned against you who are holy, then we are utterly depressed. Moses knew his own sin. And perhaps Moses' great regret was his sin against the rock, which was Christ. Remember when he struck the rock twice, contrary to the Lord's command. And in doing so, he struck the one who would be stricken by the Father. It is unjust of everyone but the judge of all the earth to strike the Son. And the Lord disciplined his servant by not allowing him to enter the promised land. That must have hurt Moses. But, of course, he couldn't object to the holy God. He couldn't object to the, to the just judge of all the earth. But he, he knew his sin. And what does the sinner in this situation do but cry out, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. What does the sinner do who knows that all of his secret sins are ever before the Lord but cry out, Clean me, purify me, justify me, not because of my works, but because of the works of Christ. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Moses knew his sin. We know our sin. Moses likewise knew the sins of others, and he suffered because of the sins of others. He knew sorrow because of Israel's iniquities. The rebellious, stiff-necked people would challenge his leadership 24-7. The guy couldn't get a break. He woke up to new challenges. He woke up to new challenges to his own leadership. Consider Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Remember them, who their families would, would bring a heartache to Moses. Be swallowed up in Korah's rebellion. The earth would be opened up for them. Yes, they would be swallowed up. But Moses knew what it was like for them to want to swallow him. He knew that the mouths were open trying to consume him. But even closer to home, Moses had to feel the weight of sorrow that even his own siblings, his brother and his sister, 
brought about. When Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses. Or another time when Aaron had led the golden calf incident. Such heartache that must have caused Moses. Or as he continued to minister to Israel, Israel continued to complain constantly. And we can sympathize with Moses' words to the Lord in Numbers eleven fifteen: If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If this is how, the, how Israel is going to be, Lord, for the rest of my leadership, will you just kill me at once? Just take my life. I'd love to just be with you and not have to deal with this rebellious people. Take my life. So many leaders in the Bible considered Elijah or Jonah. Other leaders who knew the, the rebelliousness of people despaired. Lord, would just, just take me out of the picture. So he knew his own sin. He knew the sins of others. He knew suffering. He was both sinner and sufferer because of other sins, and as such, he knew how temporary was his condition. And so we see in the psalm, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The wise heart knows that his, na- that his days are numbered. You are not as long-lasting as you think you are. You are not invincible. You are not as enduring as you think you are. Your life, as it were, hangs on a thread. You're not the master of your fate. You do not determine when you die. You don't determine how many days you have left here on earth. You're not the author of life. Jesus urges us not to be anxious about tomorrow. There's enough trouble today. Don't worry about tomorrow because you might actually live tomorrow. Now, Jesus is not saying, don't make any plans for the next day. Don't schedule lunches. Forget about work obligations. He's not saying that. What he's saying is live here in the present, mindful of pursuing God's kingdom. Some of us have had run-ins with death such that when we reflect, we realize how God had spared our lives, that we could have, even should have died, yet we were spared. These are reminders that we are not guaranteed another breath. Yet this lesson is one that needs to be ingrained daily in our souls because it is so hard for us to affirm. And John Calvin acknowledges this. And remember, you have to... In the 16th century, there were plagues galore. People were not living as long as you and I are. They were suffering, one suffering after another. So you would think that in Geneva, in Calvin's day, for instance, people would be intimately familiar with this lesson, that they would daily number their days. Yet Calvin says, although we know from experience that when people have completed their course, they are immediately taken out of the world, the knowledge of our frailty fails to make a deep impression on our hearts because we do not lift our eyes up above the world. We're we're so worldly focused, we're so self-focused that we don't think as well and as much about eternity 
but our own eternal God, about how we are not going to live much longer. In the past couple of months, the mocks have been reminded of how soon or sudden our stuff or our bodies may fail us. For the last two months until just two days ago, we had a dryer that didn't dry. Well, it did after about three cycles, and that was a trial. We had a car that had to get Shamgar the car car. You know him well. He had to re- return to the mechanic. We, had, we didn't have him for a little while. It might be a back issue. It might be a knee problem. It might be eye problems. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be your own sibling. We all know, don't we, that the outer man is wasting away. And the question is, is the inner man being renewed day by day as we reflect upon our eternal God? This is a lesson that we must all learn regularly. The psalm says that we live 70, maybe 80 years, but our lives are filled with toil and trouble, and they pass away like the fading flowers. Now, if you've been here in springtime, you know how beautiful the dogwoods are. There's even a dogwood festival. But you also know how short-lasting they are. They, They bloom and they fall in the span of about a month. At least ours do. And we love seeing them. And then the trees are just green for another 11 months. Really, we're anticipating you know, March, late March, or early April. Oh, beautiful dogwoods. But they're here today, and they're gone tomorrow. Thomas Akempis says, Live that death will never take you unprepared. There's even wisdom in Frozen 2. One day you will die. It is true that one day we all will die. Will we live like that is the case? Will we live knowing that we will not live forever here on earth? So what can the frail, finite, and fallen human do but pray to God as Moses does in verses 12 to the end of the psalm? Moses does this as intercessor for the people of God. He prays for God's wisdom. He prays for God's mercy. He prays for God's favor. He prays that God would pity us. He says in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Pity us, he says. Only in this psalm and in Moses' words in Exodus 32, verse 12, is the Lord asked to turn and relent and so have compassion on the people of God. In Exodus 32, 12, he asks God to turn from his burning anger because of the golden calf incident. And now, as exiles on the horizon, Moses' words are used to petition for pity again. As frail humanity, we pray for pity. We pray that God would know our condition and that God, knowing our condition, would be compassionate toward us. For we are truly pitiful creatures. And that's okay. I know some people don't like that idea. Well, don't pity me. Well, if it's the Lord who pities you, then you should take all that pity. (laughs) Pity us. But satisfy us as well. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So pity is not enough for the one who prays in faith. Moses prays, we should pray for satisfaction. Real satisfaction is inseparably tied to the new morning mercies of God's covenant love. Pity us. Satisfy us. 
Gladden us, verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses is saying, oh Lord, we have known sorrow. Cause us to know joy even more. Let the sighs and the sorrows of our sin, of this world, not overwhelm us. Do not let toil be the theme of our hearts, or groans be our mouth's main speech, but let it be joy. Oh, yes, Lord, we have been afflicted. Yes, Lord, we have seen evil. But let us see good. Let us see good. Let us see more good. Let us see joy and more joy and even more joy. More joy that overwhelms the sorrows. Pity us. Satisfy us. Gladden us. Show us. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses prays for a showing of those wonderful works of God that he knows so well. He was an instrument in God's hand, working great miracles. I imagine we all envy him to some degree. We love to do the things that Moses was able to do. We wouldn't want to lead a people as rebellious as that, gener- that Israelite people was, but surely it would be nice to strike a rock and get water out of it, or to part a Red Sea and all the rest. Let the plagues be only the beginning of your work against your enemy, O Lord. Let the parting of the Red Sea be only the start of your redemptive rescue. Let the manna from above be only a fraction of daily abundant bread that we will receive. Show us. Pity us. Satisfy us. Gladden us. Show us. Give us. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Sometimes this could be translated beauty. Give us your favor or give us your beauty, O God. Make your brilliant face to shine upon our cloudy countenances, O God of all blessing, we pray. As your glory filled the tabernacle, as your glory would then fill the temple, may it fill us too, Lord. May the ironic benediction be ever on our faces, and may it always fill our hearts. Give us beauty, give us favor, Pity us, satisfy us, gladden us, show us, give us, help us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Help us, O God, to work heartily unto you, O Lord. Establish our hands. We pray, O God, you know how weak our hands are. You know how Aaron and her needed to sustain your servant Moses' hands to defeat the Amalekites. And as we lift up our hands to receive your blessing, strengthen them now for your service, we pray. Pity us. Satisfy us. Gladden us. Show us. Give us. Help us, O eternal Lord God Almighty. Does God answer this prayer in real time? Surely he does. Surely he has. As we see, if we just read our Bibles... He answered Moses' prayer in the Old Testament. Moses was a good intercessor as far as he went. He was faithful. He was meek. He was a godly man. He interceded for the people, even though he didn't want to, even though he was reluctant, even though he was a very weak man. Paul calls him 
a faithful servant in the house of God. And we even remember the mediation of Moses in Numbers 14, verse 19. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Please pardon the iniquity of this people. Forgive Israel, he says. Not according to my great leadership skills. According to the greatness of your steadfast love, Lord. Just as you have been faithful from Egypt until now. Because you are the God before all generations. You are the God in all generations. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. But Moses could not make good on the prayer that he sings here before the throne of grace. He could not actualize his prayer. Every good thing from above is found in Christ. The prayer for pity is answered by the heart of the compassionate Christ who saw us in our helpless, sinful estate and ushered us into an estate of salvation. The prayer for satisfaction is answered by the all-satisfying love of Christ every single morning. The prayer for joy springs from the bosom of Christ and into ours for everlasting gladness. The prayer for marvels, prayer for works, was answered by the wonderful counselor who demonstrated time and again his deity, his power, his compassion, his love for people. The prayer for favor, the prayer for beauty is answered every single week at the end of every Lord's Day service with Christ's beautiful countenance shining brightly upon ours in the benediction. The prayer for help is answered daily as Christ, our intercessor, helps us every moment of the day to do the work that he calls us to do. He establishes our hands. And you know, The truly remarkable grace is that our eternal God has moved us from a place of evanescence to a place of everlasting. And and how has he done that? Through the life of Christ, through the eternal life that we are given by his grace. He made man who is evanescent to live for all eternity with him because of Christ. So go ahead. Ask God to teach you to number your days. That is, if you can count that high. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our eternal God, we thank you that you have given us eternity. Not in the sense that we are eternal like you, but you have given us eternal life, O God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for the eternal life that we have in him through the Spirit. Transform us again, we pray. Help us also to number our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.